0: A lot of people in the climate space, unfortunately, are looking at their predecessors as their enemies. And yeah. I don't look at them that way. I look at them as my partners. I look at them as people who they did what they could at that time with the information and the resources that they had. And they deployed in that space. Now they're realizing that, OK, maybe it wasn't the best idea to deploy the way that we did. But we have to now fix whatever happened. Right. And so we have to try and, and, and improve upon what we've done. And that's where you know that merge happens you have to have both come into play and it would be a dumb idea tomorrow to shut down all oil pipelines to shut down everything that has to do with fossil fuels it's just it's not going to happen and for that to happen it would cause catastrophe so you do have to go about it in a strategic way and it has to be smart and so that's where it comes where we have this transition come into play where we're coming in And we're getting oil and gas money to go and deploy into renewables. And that if you can see with the trend, that's really what's happening.
1: The climate conversation has never been more divided. As disruptors in this space, we're hungry to find solutions to the challenges our environment faces. Welcome to the Climate Rebels podcast. My name is Joel Caesar. I'm joined by Owen Barrett and Chris Pomerlew. We are experts in clean energy, net zero real estate, decarbonization, and entrepreneurship. We celebrate those who take action against the climate crisis and are striving to make the world a cleaner place. Thanks for joining the conversation. Now, let's get to work. Welcome to the Climate Rebels podcast. Joining me as always is Owen Barrett, self proclaimed Adam Newman of Green Building. Of course, my name is Joel Caesar, the world's greatest climate podcast host. Today's guest is Nizar Delbani. He's the managing partner at Doomsday, a real estate and renewable energy company that acquires and converts commercial real estate in the heavy and light industrial sector of the market to net zero. He is an economist, activist, and renewable energy mogul, and truly is a rebel in the clean energy space. Man, he was a cool guest. I when we first thought about doing the podcast and you know, I'm in the world of deep sustainability. I got lots of cool people in my Rolodex that we've been trying to bring into the show and they've all been awesome and we got more coming. But I was really excited about people like him who like he's just some guy I found on Twitter who's out there taking action at scale. He's raising money from people in the Middle East and he's doing agrivoltaics and he's buying huge commercial properties and converting them to net zero and we talk about all the time. We want to celebrate the doers and the people taking action and the entrepreneurs. And this guy is all of those things and so articulate and so knowledgeable. So I think out of all of our guests, if you're watching the show or interested in listening to the show because you're trying to learn about how you can get into the field of renewable energy meeting real estate, this was a great guest.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's so refreshing to talk to someone else that's just fed up with the lack of action and just says, I'm going to do it myself. I'm gonna figure yep. it out. I'm gonna raise the money from the Middle East. I'm gonna buy the real estate. I'm gonna buy the land. I'm just gonna build it and do it because it's not happening fast enough. So because I thought it was a really refreshing simple, conversation. Yeah.
1: Exactly what we also see all the time. This is a pretty simple business model to execute. Yeah. You just need to do it fast. Doing it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But before we get into Nizar, let's dive into a segment. We're going to call, I guess it's Science Corner. We're always borrowing bits from the All In podcast. So this is a version of it. And I think it's just um, capitalizing on what's in the news right now. So I will probably sort of butcher this. I consider myself a science expert, (laughs) but not to this extent. We're going to talk about this LK99 superconductor story that is taking the internet by storm. And again, we on this podcast try to bring these wonky, big sustainability climate topics into in an approachable manner. So I guess I'm going to try to do this with LK99 and this advanced physics conversation. But essentially, there's people on the internet who think they've discovered a new material that has the ability to carry electricity at room temperature with zero resistance. And it's apparently the holy grail of physics and material and energy because historically, to move electricity and move electrons through the materials we use today, copper being one of the main ones, there's resistance, it creates heat, and to to move mass-scale electricity or computing electrons through some Earth-based material creates a lot of heat and has to be done at super low temperatures, meaning it costs a lot of money to keep all those places cool. Large data centers around the world are really hard to operate and very energy-intensive, mainly because they're trying to keep themselves cool all the time. So hopefully that was a good enough explanation of this. And I would encourage anyone who's, who hasn't heard about this to look into it, LK99. and Maybe I won't talk more about it unless you think you can improve upon that. But I, I guess the conversation I want to have with you here is about, especially if you listen to the guys on the All-In talk about it, because Friedberg's just this in- incredibly articulate and intelligent nerd about science. But it's this idea that what this could unlock, if this is true, we found a superconductor with pr- pretty readily available materials on Earth that can... Move these electrons around at room temperature. This unlocks the flying car. This unlocks vehicles moving down the road over magnets and having zero friction. This unlocks unlimited battery storage of clean energy. And so, how do we think? How do we all? It, you know, the, you know, there's just a mindset of abundance. You know, I think in the early days of nuclear, people were thinking, "Wow, look at we discovered this." new material that we can create crazy amounts of energy from what's that going to do to the future of human society so i'll stop talking let you react to what we what we're learning well here. you
2: basically took all my talking points that i was going to say so i don't have much to say i think the for me the big thing is you know we've we society have had superconductive materials before but to your point it's always had to been super like really cold so it hasn't been practical in the real world you can't have superconductivity that has to be whatever negative 100 degrees and have it in the real world, doesn't make sense. So I think about you know transportation, I think about energy, and then I guess storage is sort of a part of energy, but transportation, I mean, look at everything that's happening with EVs now. What if we make the leap from EVs to floating cars and how little energy, I mean, if there's no resistance, you would basically need almost zero energy to go from point to point, which would be crazy. Yeah. Then on the storage front or the energy front, having zero line loss in transmission and distribution lines, that would be granted you would have to rebuild all transmission and distribution lines, which would take a long time and cost a lot of money. But when you finally did it, you'd have perfectly efficient transmission and distribution. You would have no losses of of energy through that process. So you would need far less generation, which is huge. And then on the storage side, I mean, imagine I can't even really wrap my head around what that means that you could pack unlimited amounts of energy into a battery. Like I physically can't wrap my head around that, but just think about what that would do for the storage industry. Like instead of having these massive utility scale storage facilities that are huge, you could have the same thing, but a much smaller footprint, much less materials. A lot of the pushback that I get from the tin hat crew on social media is, well, what about the, you know, environmental impacts of mining and blah, blah, blah. Rare earth minerals. Yeah, exactly. Some of that's true. But if you had superconductivity, you would need far less materials, I think, to, to store the same amount of energy. So, I mean, overall, it's, I think, all good. I think there's still, the jury's still out in terms of whether or not it's real or not. But I mean, man, we could see some crazy changes in our lifetime because of this.
1: Yeah, and I think a message maybe I'd love to leave us with here is if you do the math of trying to stay under one and a half degrees Celsius global warming, which is what the IPCC is advocating we do to avoid the catastrophic effects of climate change, it it can be daunting it's hard to be optimistic when you look at the math like the trend of where we're going with emissions and how what we have to do to stay under uh, one and a half degrees celsius looks very challenging now we're always here talking there, there's a way and we got to mass deploy at scale what we have the technology available today but there's also you should have hope everyone should have hope because there will be these crazy breakthroughs in science of things we can't even imagine that are going to help us get there so that's why those of us in the time we're acting now have to do everything we can it's buying us time for the researchers and the experts and the innovators out there to figure this stuff out before we reach some tipping point that we can't come back from.
2: Yeah, I think the only other point is we don't know when those breakthroughs are going to happen or how long it's going to take to actually implement the tech once it's discovered. So we do have to act now because we can't just hope that there's some, you know, silver bullet five years from now that like rids of of all emissions or does everything needed. So I agree like it, it helps you stay optimistic and hopeful, but we can't take our eye off of having like massive immediate action right now because that's what's needed right now and that's what we have to do right now.
1: Well, now we know you can come to the Climate Rebels podcast to get your education on solid state <laughs> physics breakthroughs.
2: But Add another one to the box. To until the next
1: time. <laughs> <laughs> but now let's jump into our conversation with Nazar Delbani. Nizar Delbani is the managing partner at Doomsday, a real estate and renewable energy company that acquires and converts commercial real estate in the heavy and light industrial sector of the market to net zero. He and the team focus on reducing the negative impact of high power consuming industrial properties by reducing their consumption, then offsetting it using proprietary and innovative software and hardware solutions. Nizar and his team believe it is time for a shift in the paradigm to make renewable energy our source of power. He is an economist, activist, and renewable energy mogul. So, Nizar, welcome to the Climate Rebels podcast.
0: Thank you for having me, Joel. I really appreciate being here, and it's exciting what you guys are doing. I you know, identify with everything that you guys are building here, so happy to be here.
1: Well, we're happy to have you. We know you're a rebel. So on that note, if you're a fan of the show, you know we always like to start with the same question. How are you, a climate rebel? <laughs>
0: Well, that is a very great question. And every time I hear people's answers, I'm like, I want to have a cool (laughs) answer like that, but maybe I don't have one, right? The real answer here is that, you know, in regards to everything that I've done in in my career, in my life, I've always seen myself as the underdog, as the rebel, as the guy coming up against uh, the evil empire, right? And so that's my philosophy on things and especially being in the industry for renewables, for diversity and kind of changing things. That's really where my, I guess, rebelism comes from. Being somebody who's against the oil and gas industry, for example, especially with my ties to the Middle East, since that's where I'm (laughs) from. It's kind of, you know, weird where, you know, an Arab who's benefiting from the oil and gas side of things on one end and then come in here and say, no, we don't want that. You know we want to focus on renewables, deploying this, kind of building all these agrivoltaic solar forms, and as well as the net zero property conversions that we're doing on the commercial side of things. So that kind of hand in hand it just it's very different, as well as the fact that I've always taken the, the rebels approach even with everything that I'm doing on the private equity side of things, where I'm an unconventional fund manager, and its just it's very different for them to see. So you know, a shout out to. The guys over at the Wall Street Rebels, that's kind of another reason why I identify with the climate rebel side of things.
1: Yeah, well, you're using a lot of our favorite words, unconventional, (laughs) rebel, (laughs) taking down the evil empire, underdog, so Mm -hmm. all things we here at Raven truly align with. I'll kick us off here. I know Owen's got a ton of questions, but I became a fan of yours through Twitter. I, this is the first time we met. This is one of the cool things about hosting a podcast. I watched this guy. I never, heard, I never knew him before, and you're posting really cool content about what you're doing, very open about your business model and some of your successes and challenges. So someone like me who's out there looking to learn from uh, renewable energy, real estate entrepreneurs, you're a great follow. So, so many questions here, but let's start with something you just mentioned. You come from an oil and gas family it's our understanding we did some homework on you before the show and you nice. just talked about how there's some mm-hmm. uh, rebelliousness mm. and what, what you've chosen to do with your life compared to
0: your family background
1: so yeah maybe we start there mm-hmm. how's that, that been yep. how's that, how'd that come about and how's that going with your family ties
0: that's right yeah so you know it's it has been something of a stringent relationship uh, you know there are uh, a lot of I'm not going to say negative feelings, it's more of, you know, we're on opposite sides of the table. And we're trying to come together to make something better, right. And, you know, being from somewhere in the Middle East that, you know, they are pumping out a bunch, you know, a bunch of oil all the time trying to continue to export that and the large impact that does on the world. It makes me feel like now I have to do something on my end to kind of combat that to kind of, you know, compensate for what has been done, I guess, not from a reparation standpoint, but more from a perspective of, OK, you know, we we made a ton of money here. It's something that has been beneficial from a financial perspective. But now how do we use that those finances How how to use that, that capital to fix or improve or kind of, you know, make things better ultimately for the future. Right. You know, oil and gas had its time. It's You know, it's necessary. It's a necessary thing that we've had to use. And I'm not somebody to say, yeah, I want to shut down oil and gas tomorrow. No, I don't think that's a a smart thing to do. But we do need to move forward and apply renewables into what we're doing and continue to have that be the focus while reducing and limiting the amount of gas and oil that we're exporting and putting into the environment. I feel like you're ahead of
2: your time. I feel like there's going to be this epiphany in the Middle East where it's like, all right, you know, our time here with oil. Is coming to a close. Let's shift all our money into renewables because that's going to be the next, that's a future. So maybe you're just sort of a whatever that term is, you know, you're the robin.
0: Mm-hmm. Of, uh, a trailblazer is, is what they like to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but yeah, no, it's very interesting because every time I have conversations with people there, who are in the industry, they're all telling me the same things, you know, that we're looking at at getting into alternative investments. We're trying to deploy capital into renewables. Like, it's just unbelievable how much the shift is happening. And it's happening in front of my eyes. Like before last year, we were doing some, some interesting things down there and people were looking at investing into alternative investments in the States. But then with you know, everything that was happening with the Inflation Reduction Act and how things were going, we said, hey, let's take a pause. Let's see what happens, what ends up going on with the legislation in, and what that does for the industry in the States. And then we'll talk about what you guys can deploy into there because everybody's trying to get a foot ahead of the curve, like you said, Owen, and be more invested into the space because they see that eventually it's going there. They can't fight it, and so that's the sentiment that I'm getting from people down there.
2: Yeah, we talk about the IRA all the time. we talked about it on the last podcast. What are you, what are you guys doing to sort of get you know positioned and re- ready for when all the rebates and, and incentives are available?
0: There's a lot of things that we're doing, and the team is amazing, and, and our analysts and everybody who's on uh, the financial side, as well as the deployment side, and operations are focused on trying to maximize everything, because as you know, There's, you know, the base credit that you would get, and then you kind of have to hit certain metrics in order for you to qualify for the higher credits. And the way that I've always been explaining this to people that really don't understand the the capacity and what this really is and how this can benefit them. The fact of the matter is that the government is basically giving people a 70% LTV if you hit the max, obviously, but it's giving the people a 70% LTV loan at a 0% interest to go and build and deploy into renewables in specific geographies with low income, for example, being targeted in terms of the power being sold to those areas, et cetera. And so what that does in an environment that we're in today, like the debt environment that has skyrocketed in, in terms of the rates and everything that does It causes deals to pencil when they didn't pencil in the past. It opens up doors and opportunities that did not exist. And so when I frame the thing to people that way, they look back and, and, you know, I'm sure you guys understand the same thing in terms of Raven and and how you guys are building it and where, you know, when you want to do an improvement and you're getting a 50% credit on the improvement side of things, and specifically in multifamily, you got section 45L, you got section 179D, you can combine it with 48C, all all of that LL-48. Uh, and can, you can combine it with all that. And that just in, improves your numbers dramatically. And so we take all of that and we deploy it into everything that we can and try to maximize as much. Um, but we, in our models, we base out a 40, 50% really. We don't really hit the 70% because we try to be conservative in our modeling.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, Nizar, something, another theme, you know, as Owen mentioned, the Inflation Reduction Act has come up a lot with various guests here. and. The other theme I want to touch on, though, is this transition. You said, I don't think it's a good idea to shut down oil and gas tomorrow. And one of the themes we try to celebrate here is that this is a big tent effort right now to decarbonize the world's economy. And we can't be fighting amongst each other and we can't be pointing fingers. And you're in the Middle East working with the major oil and gas producers, trying to transition them, transition their revenues, to their money, their business models. And, of course, there's a lot of opportunities to do that here in the States, too. And that's just, I'm sure you're going to agree. I'm just maybe making the point that Mm -hmm. we all need to celebrate this. Oh, and I feel like who was the recent guest where we talked about this a lot? Like, it will be a transition. We're not Mm -hmm. against each other. And that's that's okay. Mm -hmm. we got to exist in this gray area. But we need people like you, people like Raven out there saying, we're going to build new business models that are capitalizing on this incredible opportunity. And at the same time, we're going to work with the legacy energy industries that have done a lot for the development of humankind to transition them forward.
0: That's right. That's right. And so, you know, and that's how we have to look at it. A lot of people in the climate space, unfortunately, are looking at their predecessors as their enemies. And I don't look at them that way. I look at them as my partners. I look at them as people who they did what they could at that time with the information and the resources that they had. And they deployed in that space. Now they're realizing that, OK, maybe it wasn't the best idea to deploy in the way that we did. But we have to now fix whatever happened. Right. And so we have to try and, and, and improve upon what we've done. And that's where, you know, that merge happens. You have to have both come into play. And it would be a dumb idea tomorrow to shut down all oil pipelines, to shut down everything that has to do with fossil fuels. It's just it's not going to happen. And for that to happen, it would cause catastrophe. So you do have to go about it in a strategic way, and it has to be smart. And so that's where it comes where we have this transition come into play, where we're coming in, and we're getting oil and gas money to go and deploy into renewables. And that if you can see with the trend, that's really what's happening. A lot of the older energy tycoons, or, or you know, these massive conglomerates, they're starting to push into that region. And so it has to go that way. So I completely agree with you. And then whoever was on the show that said something similar, they're on the right track.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, Owen, you can speak to this too. Owen and I, with our Raven business model, we're trying to raise money from lots and lots of people for smaller mm-hmm. amounts. And we're having lots of conversations mm-hmm. with those people. And We get the question a lot, how are you guys, because our projections are promising certain returns to those investors. And so you get the question of, hey, interest rates, we're all paying attention. This is crazy. Are you sure you're going to be able to buy buildings and hit your target returns? And Mm -hmm. of course, it's nuanced. You're in real estate and you're in lots of places. So you know, not every answer is the same depending on which market, which asset type. But the answer that you just said, I'll, I'll paraphrase of, sure, look, if you're a traditional real estate business model and just doing kind of traditional value add, trying to raise revenue through increased rents. That's, yes. That seems challenging right now in this environment. Very
0: challenging. Very but if you can take
1: advantage yeah. of everything the government is doing right now, especially from the Inflation Reduction Act, to incentivize clean energy, then that makes a lot of opportunities that otherwise might not seem appetizing um, look pretty promising. I
2: think the other thing, too, on that note is, you know, I don't think today there's a lot of data to suggest that a net zero building will trade at a lower cap rate than sort of a a similar building that's more conventional, not net zero. But I would guarantee my net worth that in 10 to 20 years, these buildings will trade at lower cap rates. So I think if you're, you know, modeling out a 10, 10 year old, 15 year old, I think you should mess around with a sensitivity analysis of what happens if your cap rate isn't 6%, it's 55 because you have a net zero building and traditional buildings are, are trading at six caps. So I think mm-hmm. we're at this like inflection point of when there's going to be more value put on net zero buildings when they trade. I don't think we're there quite yet, but I do see that in the next 10 to 20 years.
0: I completely agree with you. Give it a couple of decades, and that will happen. The compression has to happen, and that's in my opinion because the value is just apparently there, and so what that is going to do is it, it is going to translate into what they trade at and then how they are being bought. So the value is going to be significant and specifically to to what you were saying, Joel like. The traditional, you know, real estate guy who's trying to make a deal pencil with just being able to add some value through raising rents or, or improving certain things in terms of the living conditions, you know, that's, that's great. And it's, I think it's, it would work, you know, in terms of a, just trying to do some kind of a core improvement, things like that. But it's not going to give you those massive increases in value that people have been used to that they've been seeing over the 2021 2022 periods. And historically, right. So, but when you can come in and you can take a fixed expense and eliminate that expense and draw all that back into your NOI, that is just unbelievable. Like you look at a building that has a million dollar power cost, and you can say, okay, if I deploy X amount of dollars into a solar system with a new HVAC, I improve the roof, I do some kind of building envelope to reduce the uh, to improve the insulation, all this kind of stuff, and then. Now that NOI all goes back into the million dollars all goes back to my NOI at a six cap, at a five cap, whatever that might be. You know, that value creation there is unheard of. And it's done like that. You don't have to sit and wait two, three, four years for that to happen. It's a six to 12 month period to get that construction completed. So, and it's an instantaneous draw into your NOI. So that's what I love about it. And, you know, for us, we model cap rates and for sensitivity uh, perspective, we don't really reduce it. The way that I'm looking at it is I'm just saying, okay, worst case scenario, cap rates remain the same and they don't go down, even though I expect them to, but they don't go down. What am I going to exit at? And still the numbers are phenomenal.
1: I've been telling, I've been telling Owen about you for a while. I'm like, this guy on Twitter is just out there basically celebrating our business model and talking all about a net zero and how. We're adding value because of the NOI impact. So great to have you. You know what's crazy?
0: I I came up on Raven on Instagram before I even spoke to you or before you reached out to me. So I was like, these guys are doing something great. I, I like oh, it. Look at that. We see you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's
1: working. Real. You're targeting real the right there. people. You're you're yeah.
0: targeting the right people. Yeah.
1: Well, let me let me respond to your answer there. I want to do two things real quick here. I want to make fun of Owen first. <laughs> And then I want one of you to do uh, some education here for the audience on cap rates. So let's make fun of Owen first. We like to frame ourselves as the climate podcast version of the All In podcast. you listen to that show?
0: Got it. Yeah, I do.
1: And so, you know, Chamath, well, Owen's favorite, yep. he, he's always out there. He's willing to make a bet on live in the podcast. I, I know. Um, calls yeah. himself a betting man. So I think we should. Owen just said he would guarantee his net worth that 10-0 biddings would be lower cap rate in the future. Should we put him on the spot well, like full the record, I said
0: 10, 10 to 20 years, 10, 10 to 20 years? <laughs> 10 and he's to guaranteeing 10. His, is he guaranteeing his net worth today or his net worth in 10 to 20 years? Because I'm guaranteeing that, that my net
2: worth today that in 10 to 20 years, oh. you'll see lower cap rates on net zero buildings than equivalent non net zero buildings.
0: Got it. Okay. Well, I, don't,
1: I don't think you'll find Nizar and I taking that bet because I think we're on, on your side. But if there any, yeah. anyone out there in the audience who wants to take Owen's bet, reach out to us. Invest <laughs> at joinraven.com and uh, mm-hmm. we can put Owen's net worth on the table. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My, so my second piece oh. was I want some education, right? You both are talking cap rates. Not everyone understands that term. So maybe Owen, let's ask you, describe what you meant by the lower cap rate for a net zero building.
2: So the way that value is derived in commercial real estate is you take net operating income, which is kind of like net profit, and you divide it by a cap rate, which is basically the unlevered return. So if you were to buy a $100,000 property, all cash, and it gave you uh, $5,000 per year in cash in your pocket, that would be a five cap. So my point is... When you model out a hold period for a certain property, you have to look at what your going in cap rate is today, and then so you have that to. Ca- bas- in that
1: case, it was five percent. You were buying something that was already producing five percent.
2: Well, you yeah, but usually you look at it on a levered basis because there's debt in the equation. Um, but yeah, so you look at what your going in cap rate is, and then you know before the sort of debt market exploded, a lot of multifamily syndicators were assuming like a five basis point per year increase in cap rate. Does that make sense?
1: Yep, I'm following.
2: So now I would say it's more like 10 basis points, maybe 15. So you take what you think your NOI will be in 10 years and you divide it by what you think your cap rate will be in 10 years. And that's what you should be able to sell your property for in 10 years my point is if you have two identical buildings but one is net zero and one is not i think that the net zero building will trade for a lower cap rate than the non-net zero building because it will be more in demand
0: by buyers
1: you agree nizar good explanation i
0: completely i completely agree and that's a great explanation for how cap rates work and the compression versus expansion of those cap rates. Many people don't really understand. And I'm glad that you guys did mention that to explain what that really is. So and that's a, a very real estatey term, you know, And in terms of how we look at things on the renewable energy side, it's, you know, we look more on like EBITDA and NOI, multiples, things like that. But when it comes to real estate, yeah, it's all about the cap rate. You know, I bought a a million dollar property is shooting out $500,000, that means, you know, I'm making it
1: 5%. Well, we're on net zero. Let's transition to your company, Doomsday, shaking up the real estate space. Mm. Looks like you call yourself rebels with clean energy. So we love that. But uh, let's talk about yeah. your, let's talk about the holistic approach to net zero with Doomsday. And maybe mm-hmm. describe where you guys are at and in then in the, the, the evolution Great. of the business.
0: Perfect. So I started Doomsday about five, six years ago, and it was after I decided that I wanted to get into the private equity space because I saw the impact that it could do to what we were building. And I historically been in uh, many different businesses. My family has operated in electronic and electrical systems, components, accessories, business, manufacturing, and distribution for decades. And so that was one of the things that we have become famous for in the Middle East, actually. And so after, you know, years and years of things going well, and, you know, then, you know, you had things go wrong in the economy in the States with my father and everything that they had built, they transitioned to a few different things, one of which was deploying into the energy efficiency space. Uh, And so that drew into the renewable energy space. And when I was in uh, Guangzhou, China, I lived there for some time and I really started understanding how they were doing things and I saw solar everywhere there. Uh, and so they were very heavy into that. I was in the Canton Fair, I remember. And in the Canton Fair, I that's where I stumbled upon the industry and I said, this is something that I need to bring to the United States because I see this nowhere in the States. And so that's really how my start happened into <laughs> renewables, but then fast forward a few years later. Which was about six six years ago. I started into private equity, built Doomsday, start and have been building since then. Right now, we're actually the the focus and the mission for Doomsday is to combat Doomsday like climate change scenarios. That's the goal Mm -hmm. and the mission. And so, I've built an amazing team over the years, brought in different people who have skill sets that I don't have to be able to improve on everything that we're doing. And so, you know, my partner is in there. They are all amazing, phenomenal people, and they bring in extremely high value from fund, you know, setup as well as you know the investor relations, deployment, build out, system integration, all of that, even the knowledge of agrivoltaics and net zero. Because really, Doomsday has like a, a two pronged approach to how we do deal with things. Is we focus on targeting the agricultural industry as well as the real estate industry. And that's how we focus on trying to decarbonize, right? And so when it comes to agriculture, we deploy into agrivoltaic forms that, you know, obviously I'm sure everybody's seen what a solar farm looks like, or if you haven't, you know, take a look at it. It's basically a big plot of land that you have a bunch of solar panels on top of that are low profile, close to the ground. And what that does that eventually, you know, I found a problem with how it's killing land. You know, we're not really killing it, but it's underutilizing it. And so I found a way to say, hey, why don't we do something different? Why don't we come in, deploy a strategy to multi-yield land compared to what people traditionally have been doing? And so what we did is we partnered with a few different organizations where we come in, we build a raised profile off of the ground, 10, 14 feet sometimes, where we put the solar panels on top of that with, you know, tracking technology to improve yield as well, and bifacial modules. That helps us with what we're doing. And then we grow crop underneath the modules. And because of the bifaciality and the fact that we can tilt the modules and we use AI to actually take a look at the sensors on the ground to say, Hey, what is the required sunlight on this piece of plot or this crop? And once it hits that required, uh, irradiance, it blocks the sun again. And so that helps with the yield of the farm, helps with the yield for the solar as well and helped with multi yielding land so that it's not, you know, being wasted. And so that was one approach. And then we took the net zero approach as well on the real estate side with the commercial and industrial deployment into, you know, heavy power consuming properties, cold storage, data centers, mining facilities, manufacturing facilities, that's kind of our approach. You know, you guys went the more traditional multi-family route, which is definitely high demand and actually has the best results in my opinion but I prefer to stick within my lane of what I know how to do. So are you guys buying the real
2: estate and decarbonizing it, or are you just focused on the decarbonization? So we acquire
0: and decarbonize. Perfect, cool. Yeah. What's your, what does the portfolio look like these days? So we're actually in the middle of a raise right now. And you know, I, not to go into too many details, but hopefully by end of year, we'll be around 1.4, 1.5 billion AUM. And is that all over the world? Is that in the States? So that's globally and in the States. So that's the direction that we are most likely going to be going in. Some of the funds that we have deployed in the past have been global in the Middle East, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Oman, UAE, Lebanon, Syria, that area. And then now in the States, we're continuously deploying with the newest fund that we have. Some of which are going to be opportunity zones. Some of which are going to be just traditional deployment into the real estate.
1: And how many of these agrivoltaic deployments do you have? I, I find this fascinating. I mean, if anyone who's paying attention to climate or sustainability or solar and reading the news, you see mm-hmm. the, the promise and these, the theory of it. And I know there's been some deployment and lots of really solid information about how it actually improves crop yield, if you do it correctly, which sounds like you're doing yes. using artificial intelligence. But mm-hmm. yeah, how long ago did you get into that? How, how, many, how much deployment do you have?
0: First one. Yeah. So the first one we did was probably four or five years ago, four years ago, around four years ago. And the results that we saw at that point in time were just unbelievable. We didn't expect what we expected. And kind of we tied things in with three things. We did the solar, we did the crop, and then we did apiaries. And so we've got these large bee farms, right? And we deployed these bee farms around the perimeter, where the farm is, because if you know anything about deploying uh, solar farms, you know that you need to have a specific amount of a setback for from the roads and from like main areas and things like that. And so that was yep. also dead land. And so what we said is, okay, we can use that land to put a bunch of beehives in. And so we just put a bunch of beehives around the perimeter of the farm, which are, you know, feeding from the crop that we have on the actual site. And being able to then make honey and produce a lot of these other resources that we can utilize, but they also improve the yield of the crop. And so putting all of that together was just maximal efficiency for us. And we, you know, we took it around with it in the beginning. We had to improve it and change it. And then we started deploying large scale. We did one pilot. And then over the years now, we've had 15, 16 go up. So they, they got larger and larger as we went along. Like we, we started first with a 10-acre piece of land, and then we kind of went over.
2: So in so this scenario,
0: some- are you the farmer, the utility-scale solar, I guess both of those? So we are not the farmer per se. We partner with the farmers, and we take a percentage of the revenue that they generate. But you so, own the land. Uh, you own the land? The extra yield. We own the land, and we own the the asset, and then we allow them to come and form underneath our panels. We allow them to do all of the required maintenance and everything that goes into that, and what helps with that is the fact that they can cultivate the land due to the fact that it's high above the ground. They can send a excavator under that. They can send a harvester under that, no problem, and it assists with everything that they need to do. So if you have a a 10
2: acre plot of land or whatever number of acres, is the land making more money off the PPA with the utility or the revenue from the crops that are being grown?
0: Have you looked at it like that? The the highest yield that we get is usually the energy. So, Mm -hmm. and and it depends actually on geographically where we're doing it because, you know, let's say in the Northeast right now where they have higher power costs, they have higher SREC. So even their state programs, for example, like in D.C. right now, where you're getting $400 per SREC, which really translates to about $0.40 per kilowatt hour. And that is ridiculous. When you look at what that does for you, if you're selling power at $0.20, $0.15, and then you're getting $0.40 just from the SREC per kilowatt hour, that just shoots your numbers up like crazy. And so when we build these, we look for areas where we're going to get the maximal financial benefit as well as maintaining the crop underneath and the growth. Now in the South, and so there's an inverse relationship there, right? Where traditionally farming happens in the South. And so you have more sunlight, but you don't have as many financial incentives for energy, as well as the state renewable energy certificates or, you know, power is cheap, you know, all those things. So there is an inverse relationship there. And so, you know, growing crop up North and uh, benefiting from that also helps with, Diversifying and even, you know, decentralizing how the farming industry works.
1: So, in doing some research about you, part of the show, I come across Project Honeycomb. Is that what this is?
0: That's Project Honeycomb. Yes. Very cool. So, so can I, yeah. Can I buy the honey? Is it like solar branded honey it, that it I can is, buy? It is solar. It is Doomsday branded. <laughs> we are planning. On I' doing something well currently we're selling it in like the local farmers' markets, and you know we have a partner who comes in they harvest, they do everything and then they sell it under their brand and then they actually provide us with it's a revenue split essentially so that's kind of how we do it but we are looking eventually to do our own branding and have our own products if it makes sense within the business model I don't like to split myself up too much you know what I do this is how I know how to do it and I want to keep focused. I don't want to go into too many different things that's going to be spreading me too thin. And so I like to operate in that sense. Yeah, don't go chasing shiny objects. You're not you're not a shiny not object syndrome. I, I had that for some time. I had to get rid of it. It was hard. Yeah,
1: Owen's like that too. I think I if, still if, have it. If this, Owen, <laughs> he, if this were Owen, he'd be texting me inside. He's like, maybe we should start a honey business.
2: <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I tend to stay within the parameters of
1: the built environment, but I definitely get the shiny yeah.
2: object syndrome. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, we're we're running out of time here, Nizar, so we might have to move to our wrap-up question. But I I wanted to touch, I think, another theme to come back to here was uh, you mentioned you lived in China and saw all the solar happening there. And that's related to what we discussed earlier about oil and gas being the enemy and, you know, how, you know, in the climate industry we're against each other. And, of course, that's, you get that with U.S. versus China. You know, you talk to a climate denier or maybe just someone who thinks it's pointless for America to act because what about China, right? We always hear Mm -hmm. that. But I think anyone who's been there, Owen and I met in grad school at UC Santa Barbara. My thesis actually partnered with a group of students at Nanjing University. So I got to go for 10 days and meet with them. And they were working on a lot of the same things we were, net zero buildings and trying to figure out how to decarbonize their school and and the, the surrounding campus. And I remember thinking there is so much happening in China. And I think anyone who's paying attention today still sees clean energy deployment is happening crazy at scale. Do they have their challenges with fossil fuel generated energy of course and just because of their scale then it's it's going to be a bigger chunk of the world's emissions but maybe you can elaborate a little bit on your time there and talk about the the efforts they're making
0: yeah so that was the the biggest takeaway for me honestly when i was living there is seeing how you know effective they were at deploying renewable energy and at realizing that the energy market is something that they need to get a hold on or else it's going to cripple them and i I can completely agree with the fact that the u.s needs to look at it like that as well um and you know instead of trying to you know combat and fight china from that perspective we need to actually be following in their footsteps because they did something that enabled them to have autonomy they did something that enabled them to not be reliant on somebody else. Today, Saudi Arabia goes and says, we're going to reduce supply. We're screwed, you know? And so, you know, I was reading something the other day about the reserves in the United States and how they're, they've almost been depleted. And we're in a situation where soon, you know, gas prices are going to go up to 8 $9 a gallon again, and it's just going to be a bloodbath. And so, if we had control over our own energy and control over how things are going that with renewables, for example, and we had deployed into this years ago or decades ago, then it would have, like China did, it would have been a very different thing. And so, you know, regardless of the fact that China does have a very high emissions direction, right? And I mean, they have a very high emissions number. And so, you know, they are definitely one of the worst or the, you know, the uncleanest countries in the world, but they also are doing more in terms of deployment like today i read actually that 10 years from now china is deploying hundred watts per capita of clean energy every single year for the next 10 years so hundred watts per capita is massive when you have two billion people almost And so that's going to be something that they are going to be pushing and they're, you know, obviously very heavily invested into it. And so, you know, I think that we need to do more and we as a country and as a leader in the world, we need to play our part and we need to actually be the one to step up and be better than China at this perspective. So, you know, I'm very big on U.S. independence and making sure that we are not reliant on anybody. And so I love what's happening right now with the Inflation Reduction Act. And that direction. And that's one of the reasons why we're building out our solar manufacturing facility in Miami. So there's so much that, you know, we have in terms of needing to be independent and pushing our own stuff. Joel
2: always yells at me for getting political on these podcasts, but I just find it so fascinating that like a net zero economy is the ultimate energy independent economy. And yet it's been spun into this like crazy world where we can't be energy independent and net zero. We have to be energy independent, yet that's dependent false. on our own fossil fuels. And I just, we got to get better at marketing as a community. Yeah, that that is coming up too, Joel. We got to figure out how to get these, the best marketers in the country working on climate change. Yeah,
1: no doubt. Like that commercial we talked about in our last episode that you sent me, that's targeting, I, I would have red state men to talk about how Mm. macho solar is so we'll send that to you Nizar you'll get a kick out of it. yeah
0: yeah no interesting I think I
1: saw it but yeah well I think sadly we're out of time Nizar it's been so fascinating to learn about your journey and your company we're going to be rooting for you you got partners here who are going to be sharing each other's stories so let us know how we can help I,
0: I appreciate that man and you know if there's anything that we can do for you here at Doomsday we'd love to help we'd love to participate you know be part of what you guys are building at raven and the like so you know anything that we can you know trade resources and as i said you know i look at everybody as a partner not really a competitor not really an enemy that's how we all need to look at each other and continue to push on you know the industry is so massive you know there's approximately 20 trillion dollars worth of you know potential here for everybody to get a, a piece and we have to have an abundance mentality and so that's how I take things. That's how I want others in the industry to see things as well. And that's why I'm so vocal on sharing everything on Twitter, you know, like you mentioned in the beginning. So, and I'm going to continue to do so.
1: Well, I might have stole your thunder a little bit there. I didn't ask the, the question. We always wrap up with the same question. It's actually pretty fun this time because your company name is related. We like to say that the last question to our guests here at the Climate Rebels, we like to celebrate op- optimism, doers, people taking action, and not drown ourselves in the doomsday news cycle so Mm -hmm. you're the you're the head of doomsday tell us what gives you hope about the future
0: so doomsday gives me hope honestly because what doomsday is doing is it is combating that it is bringing on individuals to continue to combat that negative outlook that negative you know environment that people keep talking about where it's like, Oh, you know, this is, is all bad. And then we're, we're all going to perish and it's, it's a nightmare. And okay. Yeah. But what are you doing about it? Right. <laughs> and so that's where doomsday is focusing. Doomsday is focusing on the biggest problems that we have. And we're targeting those and making sure that we do our part and we continue to deploy and we continue to push capital and, and, and resources and, and everything that we need to improve our infrastructure. And so, You know, I have a lot of hope for the future, for what we are going to be building at Doomsday and to change the narrative. And that's the reason why I actually named the organization Doomsday. It's because it's such a smash in the face. It's such a marketing, advertising, you know, powerful tool tool that has a negative connotation. But then when you ask, okay, but what do you guys do? We actually combat climate change, Doomsday-like climate change scenarios. So. That's the, you know, the effort that we push. And when people listen and they hear that, they're like, wow, that's amazing. And so that for, for us, you know, we are very hopeful. We're very ecstatic. We see the, the future and I'm looking forward to how we can make that a reality.
1: Well, it's very cool. It's a similar, one of our fam- favorite slogans we use here is stop complaining about climate change, do something about it. So exactly. Sounds like that's what doomsday is about. I love it. Well, yeah. Anizar, thanks so much for joining how can our guests, how can our audience find you? What's the Twitter handle? Where's the website?
0: Yeah, there's it's doomsdaypartners.com and um, you guys can find my Twitter, President Delbani. Um it's pretty uh, is there a little to foreshadowing
2: find. about what's gonna happen in the
0: future. Maybe I, I don't like to talk about my political <laughs> campaigns on <that. laughs>
1: But we'll see. Breaking news here on the client rebels <laughs> yeah. podcast.
0: Yeah. I'm not announcing my <laughs> campaign yet, you know. <laughs> well,
2: 2032. Uh, we expect that this podcast is your platform for announcing.
1: Yes. Let's make a deal. <laughs> All right. when, you, when you go to announce, you have to come okay. here to
0: do the announcement. I have to come here. Oh, man. Can we at least push it on Twitter so that I get some uh, Elon Musk support? Oh, yeah. yeah I'll we'll figure out how to do that. Episode we'll go, 568.
1: We'll go Twitter live. <laughs> I'll do it just like he did it with it. Like, <laughs> yeah. With DeSantis. DeSantis. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Well, Thank you, Nizar. Uh, And uh, we're going to wrap up here. Thank you, everyone, for joining. You can find us on most of the social media platforms at Join Raven. So that's join and Raven is with a Y, -Y R-A-Y-V-E-N. You can find this podcast and more great content at joinraven.com. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, like, and share with your friends. And until next time, we encourage you to ask yourself, what are you doing to fight the climate crisis?